The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Red Bull was hit with testing restrictions for breaking the cost cap, so why do they appear not to be suffering? And should they be even further ahead of the rest? We answer that question and more on this week's episode of the Race F1 Tech Show. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, I've got Gary Anderson, designer of the legendary Jordan 191, among others, alongside me. Gary, of course, has been there, done it, and bought the t-shirt multiple times during his long motorsport career. Looking forward to the Canadian Grand Prix, Gary? You've had a few memorable moments there. Yeah, I am looking forward to it. It's a, it's, it's a great event, to be honest. Um, you know, it's, it's different from the rest, because it is all high-speed um, very high braking, you know, change of direction, chicanes, um, and traction. And it, it's a different demand on the car. I think it's, a, it's an, the interesting thing is that's where, you know, during the, the braking phase, that's where the sort of control of the anti-dive, anti-lift stuff on the suspension geometry all plays into it. So it'll be interesting to see who's got on top of that sort of stuff because it's so easy if you're supporting the car too much mechanically it's very, very easy to lock brakes. And obviously there, because you're running a bit less downforce um, on the car, you know, as the speed comes off the car, the grip gets less. So you just, uh, yeah, it could cause you grief as well. But it's a, it's a good track. It's a, it's a good fun place to go to. And we, we've had lots of good good memories from there, I have. Yeah, and of course, Red Bull had a few troubles with the, the braking in Australia, particularly for Perez, although Verstappen had a brief off in the race as well. So I guess that would be the uh, the interesting thing, whether Red Bull struggle a bit. I mean, I think we're probably clutching at straws a little bit in terms of that, but it will be interesting because it does move it into a tricky area or a trickier area for that car. Yeah, it does. As I say, you know, for me, the driver gets his confidence from um, from when he you know when he gets on the brake pedal how the car feels stability-wise during braking as to when he wants to turn the steering wheel and how fast he can be travelling when he turns the steering wheel. So it is the, the most important area for driver confidence. And once you lose that, it's a bit tricky. And, you know, as we've seen with the uh, the wall of champions, as we called it, uh, that last chicane, um, it's bitten a few over the, over time. So I wouldn't think uh, we've seen the last of that just yet. But, you know, Red Bull are on top of what they've got at the moment they understand it pretty well so i don't expect too much of a difference at the front of the of the pack but um some of the chasing pack that are pushing you know to move forward a little bit it, might, it could be interesting to see who who pops up from there i mean it's, it's always tricky but uh, i think um you know the aston martin should be should be decent there the mercedes could be quite good there Ferrari's the one that's got a massive question mark over it. Where the hell are they going to end up? Because, you know, anything could happen any weekend with them. Yeah, well, they were very quick in Canada last year. Carlos Sainz finished second, and maybe Charles Leclerc could have won if he'd had a normal qualifying and a penalty, of course. So there's a few reasons for optimism, although Red Bull very much the favourites. But as always, we'll let you, Gary, have a free choice of topic to start the podcast. So what's on your mind at the moment? Well, the big thing that's happened really is the, the change of, uh, of power unit package for Aston Martin uh, for 2026. You know, uh, it's, it's never an easy thing to do. Um, they've had a long and you could say a pretty successful relationship with Mercedes. And um, at the end of the day, you know, it's a relationship that's just down the road. It's I think it's seven miles from Brackley to to. Um, to Silverstone, so it's not exactly far away to communicate. Uh, I know most communication is done electronically these days, but still, it's nice to see the whites of somebody's eyes when you're chatting about something, and that becomes quite different whenever you're working with somebody, you know, i.e., in Japan as such. So 
it's going to be tough, a tough transition because at the moment, Aston Martin, you know, they get the engine, the power unit package, but they also use, as far as I know, hydraulics, gearbox. You know, obviously the gearbox comes in with uh, suspension pickup points. You might make your own suspension for that, but a lot of the cars defined from that sort of area. And they're the, the company, you always excel in what you do. So if you take the, the gearbox itself, for example, and, and the hydraulics as, as a unit, you know, if you haven't done that for a few years, you're starting again. You're, you have to start from scratch and get that all set up. And it's no easy task. You know, gearbox is one of these things where a, it's not a race winner, uh, but it's definitely a race loser. And that's the problem you've got is that once you set out on your own with uh, a transmission project, you're on your own. At the minute, you know, we've got uh, the Mercedes package, it's two cars running it. We've got the Aston Martin package, two cars running it. I'm not sure what Williams do now, whether they run it or whether they do their own still. There was talk about it, but, you know, yeah, the they, more they use the Mercedes uh, yeah. gearbox now. Yeah. So, so use that as well. So there's six cars that are using that, that package and that's six sets of feedback you get on, on operating it and reliability on it. You know, whenever you see any bearings or anything happening, you've got six, six times the input. So going out on your own with it is another task. And through the, through the years, I mean, I've, I've had many, many different engine manufacturers. Now, the engine's just a, you know, a thing with four bolt holes in the front of it, as such, and four bolt holes at the back of it, and you just bolt it into the car. But it's not quite as simple as that because it's, it's the philosophy of the, the engine manufacturer, you know, what they're, what they're trying to do. If you take the simple things, you know, on the, on the Peugeot, for example, that we had for uh, 95, 6 and 7 at, at Jordan, um, they had the, the gear train driving the, crankshaft, uh, driving the camshafts was up the back of the engine, which meant the rear main bearing was quite a long way away from the, the flywheel because you had a gear, would have a gear train up the back of the engine, whereas all the other engine manufacturers had it up the front. And that meant that the crankshaft itself, they couldn't run as light a crankshaft because it bent too much. And it meant the flywheel run out of true, which meant the clutch exploded. So we went through like two years of trying to fix the clutch from exploding um, because the inherent problem in the engine was the, uh, was the gear train going up the back of it. Now that's, that's probably not a problem for Honda, but it just, it has things that, like that that sort of pop up that are, are different. And, um, you know, Honda's obviously been very successful now with Red Bull, but at the minute you would have to say that Alfa Tori aren't really being that successful with the, the Honda engine. And, you know, they've got an operation of X people. They've got a relationship with Red Bull. So, you know, I, I would say from that point of view that Red Bull are doing a very, very good job and Honda are tagged on the back of it as opposed to it being the other way around. You know, we saw for years with the Mercedes that we felt that the Mercedes power unit was a big, big percentage of the performance of the Mercedes car. That seems to have diluted a little bit now, but I'm... I'm pretty sure that Red Bull are, are leading the show as far as the Honda package is concerned. So it could be a bit of a, a, an eye-opener for Aston Martin whenever they get get the, their initial tests with the, the Honda. Um, I don't think of anything ro- bad with it or anything wrong with it, but I don't think it's it's the thing that's making Red Bull win races at this point in time. The Red Bull car is a very, very strong package, and obviously Max Verstappen is a, a very, very strong driver. 
one of the things that's been talked about a little bit with the Honda deal for Aston Martin is the need for the right kind of communication. How much variety is there between engine manufacturers in terms of how you deal with them, how you communicate, how you build a relationship? And does it work along almost national lines in terms of the culture, the way things are done? Obviously, you've worked not only with Honda, but also with Yamaha in, in your time as well. Well, they, they were very, very different, even taking the two of them, even the Yamaha and Honda. I mean, that was just a different world. Honda, you know, the one thing I would say with my relationship with the Honda people is that once you get them to realize where they are, they are very, very quick at responding to that situation. But they're very, very slow at realizing where they really are with, with a, a certain set of circumstances or a certain situation. So you really have to initially force that, that point across to them of where you genuinely believe your power unit stands in relationship to the others. And they will, they will you know, fight that because they, they will believe from day one that they are the best. And one, but once you get them to realize that it's not quite like that, then nobody responds any better, I think, than Honda of the people I've worked with. So it, it's, it's two-sided. You know, I think Mercedes, because they're running up their own works team, um, understand the problem very well. Um, but whenever you're out on your own with running an engine, an engine that nobody else is going to use, or theoretically at this point in time nobody else is using, and it doesn't have a works team even, then it's, it's, it's very difficult to get that message across that you know, what you're supplying us isn't actually up to the job and you need to work on it a bit. So, as I say, uh, it's, all about, it's all about why they're staying. Um, I suppose if they, you know, if they just want to stay in Formula 1, uh, then they've got to do a very good job and they've got to work very, very closely with Aston Martin. As Aston Martin, they've got to work very, very closely with Honda. But they've got to be genuinely 100% honest with each other as to where they really are as far as the um, what they believe the car performance is doing and what they believe the power unit performance is doing. They've got to be 100% honest with that. At the moment, I think, you know, as, as I say, Red Bull are slightly different because they're at the front, they're winning, so Honda can run along on the back of them and, you know, keep on developing from what they've got that little bit because they have, you know, they have a decent advantage at this point in time as far as, the car itself is concerned um so it'll be a it'll be a different relationship but it, it is the the relationship that will count in the long term and i guess they've got the advantage they've got a nice long lead time before this happens it's 2026 when the new engines come in obviously there's a lot of work to be done on those so at least that does mean there's the uh, the, the chance to sort of phase it in rather than smashing the two entities together just like that if you see what i mean yes that can be good and it can be bad um you know, at the end of the day, it's a, theoretically at this point in time, as far as we know, a fairly new package or a different package is coming in for 2026. It's not going to be new. It's just going to be you know different from what they have now. So suddenly the continuity is gone. And it would be a bit like, you know, a new set of car regulations coming in and, and hoping that because you were winning last year, you're going to win this year. And I think as we've seen, that doesn't quite happen like that. Um, you need to read the rules right and you need to react to the rules correctly. Um, and it will all be new for 2026. Now, there's a big learning curve between now and 2026 as far as what the regulations will be. There's a, there's a lot of time for change to go on and there's a lot of, of uh, pressure for change to go on. Um, so I think having that time up to then could actually be detrimental as well as beneficial just from the fact that um, it's going to be different for sure. 
and it depends on what that difference is really going to be in the end of the day. Yeah, it's always interesting with the regulations, how far out they're published now. They always go through a lot of changes in terms of the way they're, they're put together. But obviously, the aim is to make the the primary competition driver of the power units to be more the hybrid side with the, uh, the, the kind of conventional engine a bit more of a a more balanced package, if you like, from manufacturer to manufacturer. So I guess that does also slightly change the equation. Obviously, the hybrid's phenomenally important right now, but it is going to be a bigger proportion of the power as of 26. Yeah, and, and I think that's genuinely important. But also, the, the you know one of the big things is, and we get a lot of chat about it now, is the weight of the cars. And the hybrid engine is part of that package. You know, the, the, the weight of the cars is, is incredible relative to what it used to be um you know whenever you think whenever it was back at six six twenty five kilograms with the driver and on cars that i ran at that point in time we were having 40 50 kilograms of, of ballast underneath the car at the same time so you know the cars were being built in the high 400s um so it's it's ridiculous that we're up at you know what we are now it's just one of those sort of silly situations that's got out of control now if you take that weight advantage that weight addition um you know, and we say it's 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 structural for safety. That's rubbish. You know, there's no way that you've added on 100, 200 kilograms of weight to make the car safer. It's it's not like that. So, 2026 is a big chance to bring these cars back to reality, both in size and in in weight. Uh, and I think the challenge has got to be high. It's got to be you know a major challenge to bring the cars down to a practical size and a practical weight limit and as i say i suggested a little while ago you know just hit the 10 percent button just reduce everything by 10 percent the length of the car the wheelbase the the overhangs the you know the width the weight and i know that's a massive challenge but formula one is a challenge so just get on with it and just do it because that's the best way to go about it yeah, they seem to be looking at 35 kilos as the maximum opportunity to cut the weight for 2026. And I suspect they won't get up to, to that much. That just tends to be the, the way things are. But yeah, it's a, it's it's a, certainly an objective they need to commit to, I think, because the cars have got rather big, heavy and lazy. And that does impact the way that they look on track and the way the drivers enjoy them. That's why they don't like the slow corners even more than perhaps usual. Well, usually we leave the listener questions to the final part of the podcast, but we're actually going to make a topic inspired by our listener, our main talking point in this episode. It's a question from Jean-Guyen Proponet, who I've hopefully pronounced uh, adequately, who says, my question is regarding the ATR restriction that Red Bull has. We always talk about the limit in developments they will be able to do on the aerodynamic side, but there's been very little to no talk about what other areas they will be able to improve the car. There's quite a lot of emphasis put on the suspension lately, so I was wondering what other areas of the car they would be able to shift development to when and if they reach their aerodynamic limits with the ATR. After all, they still have a budget to spend. Before you answer that, Gary, I'll just give a quick overview of the ATR for listeners. These are the aerodynamic testing regulations that limit wind tunnel runs and CFD items. So the lower you are in the Constructors' Championship, the more you get, and the higher you are, the less you get. So that stretches from 70% of the allowance for P1 down to 115% of the allowance for P10. It's reset every six months based on championship positions. And of course, Red Bull has had an extra 10% taken off as its punishment for breaching the cost cap in 2021. And we should say in terms of those allocations, those are divvied up into, I think it's a total of six periods. So you don't have a total amount for the year, you have an amount for each particular period. So it's kind of staggered that way. So having laid that out, what do you make of that question, Gary? 
Well, that's a very good question. I'll just go for Jean on that one. I won't try to get into the, the complete name. Um, it's a good question because I think at the end of the day, the, the, the crime that Red Bull committed, theoretically, was to overspend on the budget cap. So personally, I believe the budget cap should have been the thing that they could spend less on this year. Uh, because they committed the crime, you know, two years ago, or whatever it was. So, the, I think the the, the 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 penalty was the wrong thing, in my book. The crime should just have been could spend less money this year. Um, but that said, one of the sort of situations they've got is that the aerodynamics of the car is the package that they've got, and we know now from various teams' developments, I suppose, that controlling that that platform is just about as important as the platform that you, or the downforce you create from that platform. Um, so there'll, there'll be obviously heavily anti-suspension control to try to minimise the movement of it and just try and stabilise it as best possible. But the other thing, going back to the, to the um, ATR, is just the fact that you know Adrian's got one advantage, I think. Adrian knew he's got one advantage, and I believe in it 100%. He, he draws everything on the drawing board. And when you're drawing on a drawing board, you're drawing too deep, two dimensional, but you have to think three dimensionally, and that gives him a massive advantage in the fact that you know he is viewing everything three dimensionally as he's trying to sort of scheme it out and optimize it or change it or whatever. Um, so many people and companies that I've worked with, you know, you'll get from the the guy who does the surfacing, you'll sort of try to create a surface somewhere, and he'll say, oh yeah, but the, this 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 CAD system you know, won't do that. It won't do that, run through those different surfaces and connect them all up. So you end up with something, or you very easily end up with something that actually is not what you want. But that's not how Red Bull and Adrian would work. You know, he would push the limits on what is achievable from his sketches, 2D drawings. And as I say, thinking about it in 3D is much, much better than trying to model it in 3D. Because at the you have to start thinking about it at the beginning, how how things fit together, for example. And you also, you know, we, we talk about Adrian seeing, you know, how airflow. That, that's the reason. That's what we're looking at. You know, he can, he can look at a drawing. And because it's in two-dimensional, he's thinking about it in 3D, and he's seeing the airflow in 3D, visualizing the airflow in 3D. I, you know, I believe I have a very similar vision. Um, I'm obviously nowhere near the level of Adrian Newey's, and I'm not trying to say that I have. But I can understand it from my ability because I am from old school. I am still the 2D drawing stuff I do now. I still do on a CAD system, but I do it in 2D. I don't do it on a drawing board. So it's it's still something that you think about quite deeply. So I think the development as far as aerodynamics is concerned, as far as mechanical bits and pieces are concerned to control that aerodynamic platform, the restriction on Red Bull will really have an insignificant effect um, financially, if it was about spending money, it would have had a significant effect. But that's not the way it was It was done. If they couldn't spend as much money as some of the other teams this year, then it would have been a bit of a different story. And I think that the, the punishment should suit the, the crime. If the crime was that you spent too much money, the punishment should be that you can't spend that money. and You just can't spend it twice. So I think that what we're seeing is the benefit of a very, very good team doing a very, very good job with the same budget as everybody else. 
you know, that's the thing, isn't it? There's plenty of other tools you can use. The wind tunnel in particular and, and CFD may be particularly valuable. Obviously, there's quite a lot of other things they can do. So we talk about suspension. So I guess that means that when you're managing your budget and your spending, that means you can, because you're not using the wind tunnel for a certain period, you can use your dynamic shaker rigs more often, that kind of thing, run more things. So you can directly replace one activity you can't do with another. Yes, this is true. Yeah, you can. You can. There's a, there's a huge amount of bits that make up the performance of a racing car. It's not just one thing. Aerodynamics obviously overpower quite a lot of it. But that aerodynamics, you've still got to control it, and that's the important thing. And they can obviously go, exploit those areas to the maximum. But as I say, I, I, I'm not sure that the, the way they operate, I'm not sure that the ATR will really hurt them too much because, again, their thought pattern is slightly different from everybody else. Now, you can go to a wind tunnel and you can have, you know, you can test 20 different front wing end plates or something of that nature. Or you can go to a wind tunnel and you can have a good stab at testing two or three and take the direction from those two or three. Um, so you can reduce your runs quite dramatically if you just think a bit deeper before you start. But a lot of teams will just set up their their parameter, their test parameters, um, with a X runs that suit their, their wind tunnel time or CFD runs and try to get the best out of as much as possible from, from the amount of runs they can run. And um, Red Bull will do just the exact same thing, but they'll just plan it around a lot less running. And as I say, because of the vision that, that Adrian has with his drawing it on the drawing board um, in 2D and having to visualise it in 3D, I think they can see it a lot further in the very initial stage, which is really, really quite important. And of course, Red Bull are able just to proceed down their development path that really they've been on since the start of last season, whereas others are changing direction. So I guess that's a big factor as well, in that Red Bull could be in a more difficult situation if they were in a really tight championship battle, then they'd be trying to trade off how they use their wind tunnel time, and that probably would have more of an impact, whereas Mercedes and Ferrari aren't putting pressure on them. So actually, that probably negates some of the impact of the penalty, doesn't it? Because they can just fairly serenely glide on managing things the way they want to without having to make the more tough decisions, because they may have to, for example, take a shorter-term view if they're in a 2023 championship battle, which realistically they're not. So I guess... This is an area where Mercedes and Ferrari have uh, massively helped them out by being too far behind. There's still another four and a half months of this extra limitation for Red Bull, but they're going to come out of it still ahead. And even if it has slowed their development progress a little bit, they've got so much in hand that it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think what you've got to look at is the fact that I think Mercedes started, and Ferrari to the extent, but Ferrari not quite so much, but Mercedes started the new regulations in 2022 um, in shock. Um, and it took them six months to sort of relieve that, to release that shock and actually think, okay, we're actually getting beaten here. We haven't done a good enough job. Ferrari started 2022 quite well and they've just got worse as it went on. So they've gone the opposite direction. And the thing is that we Red Bull and their aerodynamic testing, they are in a position where they can sort of dot the I's and cross the T's on their underfloor, well, their car concept. And as we saw from the pictures from Monaco, you know, the sophistication on their underfloor um, is second to none. So 
as I say, with all of that, they've got the they've, they've got the the horsepower in that underfloor to just need to trim it a little bit here and there, tidy it up, make the areas that are working hard work harder or whatever. So they they've been able to create that that underfloor, and now it's just as I say, dot the eyes and cross the t's, make it work a little bit better by changing the vortices down the side of it or whatever. Whereas uh, I think Mercedes, Ferrari, um, and a lot of the others, they're still they're still fighting the battle to, to find out how to go about that. They don't know how to go about that. So they need a lot more wind tunnel time to actually, and CFD time, to actually try to find a solution that would allow them to realise why the Red Bull is better. They're not just trying to go a little bit better. They're actually trying to realise what the Red Bull's got that lets them be better. Um, so their, their scope of testing for Mercedes, Ferrari and a lot of the others is massive besides the scope of testing that Red Bull need to do. And that, that, that is just testing time, one tunnel testing time, CFD testing time. And, and as you say, Red Bull don't have to go into those big steps. They just have to trim the small stuff. And the small, you know, trimming the small stuff can be as big a step as, as a massive change. So time, there's still plenty of season to go. And we'll see who can catch up and who can't catch up. But it's, it's, it's going to be interesting over these next three or four races. I think we keep saying that, but <laughs> Red Bull keep on coming back with the, the 25 or 26 points for their driver every, uh, every race meeting. So, it's, uh, yeah, I wish them all the best. They've done a fantastic job. That's all we can say. And for Mercedes to complain about it's boring for Formula One if Red Bull dominate, hang on a minute or two. Let's look back a few years. It's, you weren't saying that, to, you know, 15, 16, 17. So uh, accept it when you're getting beaten. And realise that actually, you know, you, you can still do it. You just have to get on with it. Yeah, and Red Bull are the ones who are doing the job well. well. Better than well, you'd probably say. But that's down to Mercedes and Ferrari for not delivering the level they should do. And I guess we should note that these ATR regulations, they are not designed to be a kind of brute force weapon, aren't they? They're not designed to say if you win one year, you're not going to win the next year. They're meant to be kind of a subtle adjustment to allow more struggling teams to gradually catch up over time and it's all connected to the cost cap mechanism and the more equitable distribution of the revenue that's shared by the the team. So we shouldn't expect an additional 10% reduction. I should say every time I give a percentage figure, it's not a literal 10% reduction. It's 10% of the ATR. It's a kind of a, it's not a percentage measurement really. It's a, it's an outright number reduction. So they've got 15% less than anyone than the next best than Ferrari currently, but it's not literally 15% anyway, enough maths. But that's probably a good thing, isn't it? That it's a relatively gentle mechanism that is there just to chug away year after year and just make little adjustments in terms of performance potential or hopefully close the field up. Well, uh, yeah, I use um, a reference to something quite a lot. Uh, it's a bit like a dimmer switch, you know, as opposed to an on-off switch. Um and, and again, that ATR is a bit like a dimmer switch. You know, the, the better you're doing, then the dimmer will get turned down a little bit. Um, and if you're not doing so well, the dimmer will get turned up a little bit. Um, if it was an on-off switch, as you say, it would just be be a bit daft. Um, it, it is a little bit like a you know a weight penalty as such that we see in a lot of touring car racing. You know, if you, the more you win, the more weight you add on. Um, but it's slightly different that it's hurting back in the early stages of the design of the car as opposed to at the, at the racetrack just. So I think it's right in the fact that there is a bit of a dimmer switch there to stop the leading teams running away. 
Um, but as I say early in this question, is that the the overspend um, that Red Bull did was financial, and that that finance, that money you spent at that point in time, it'll take years to not recover from that, but to for that to sort of dilute itself, because you can keep spending this year the same as everybody else. So you've you've just got that cushion back then of, of spending that extra whatever it was six million or something seven million at a point in time whenever you were trying to learn about how the car all worked you spent it early in the in your in the the regulation in the time of these regulations you spent it early in that so you've ended up starting it you know starting this this regulation set um, in a better position um, so it's one of those sort of silly situations. Hopefully, Formula One learned about it. I haven't heard much about the cost cap control um, this year's one yet. I don't know when that's going to be coming out for the twenty two accounting. Yeah, that will be uh, being audited probably as we speak. Yeah. So whenever we hear about that, it'll be quite interesting to see who's tripped up where and how many cheese sandwiches a, a certain team has had had to make. But it's um, it's one of those situations. As I say, once you spent the money. And you've you spent it on a learning curve of of getting yourself to a point where you you know more, then you don't forget it. You keep it with you. So you know Red Bull spent it at the right time. Um, maybe Ferrari and Mercedes and whatever will have to overspend a bit now to recover from the situation. But that'll be genuine recovery spend. So it'd be interesting to see what what happens. Yeah, there's compound gains, and it's it's worth noting that the because there were some accounting errors that actually put Red Bull's spending number up. So actually, the FI suggested that the real overspend was only actually about just over 400000 Now, that's still worth a chunk, obviously. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think if there are future infringements by any teams, they'll be slightly more harshly treated. There was a little bit of a, a little bit of leeway there in terms of some of the... Uh, the imprecise elements of the uh, of the way the regulations are enforced, but they need to make sure that in future, now they've had this chance for everyone to go through it properly and iron out all the wrinkles and that kind of thing. I think there will be probably more extreme penalties, but uh, yeah, I'd be very very surprised if Red Bull uh, make that error again, having maybe pushed their luck the first year. But uh, that yeah, it has to it has to have teeth, as uh, Ross Braun once said, in order to avoid people just taking the hit and accepting a penalty for a shorter term gain. Well, that's the thing. And the, the problem is that, you know, that what happened to Red Bull has set a precedent. So I'm not quite sure how the FIA would regroup and say, okay, you know, if spend the same, if, if, you know, name a team has spent the same amount of money as Red Bull, um, why should they get twice the penalty? It's one of those sort of situations where we'll get, well, it'll fight on. That's why I say I want to see another year of it to understand what has been learned out of the first year of accounting, which obviously we expect a lot. It's a very complicated thing. I mean, I would I would hate to be part of it because there's so much you can do without um, incurring costs from the cost cap, and then there's so much you can't do. It's just a bloody nightmare the way it's laid out. Yeah, and it is complicated because although they can say that it doesn't set a precedent for what things have to be in the future, when these things come to battle, they could even go to caught in a real court then that's for someone else to decide not for the FIA so yeah complicated issue I hope we don't have any such controversy this year because uh, it'll get quite repetitive if we get that year after year but we'll have to wait a few more months to see how that plays out you're listening to the race f1 tech show brought to you by Aramco 
Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. And now on to our question section proper. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can either write us a question and email it to podcast at therace.com or record a voice note, remembering to include your name, that we can play on the show. Our first question is in audio form, so let's hear it. Hi guys, hope you're both well. I love listening to the show. I've learned so much more from your podcast than I imagined I ever could. So big thanks for that. Question for Gary. If you could join any of the current F1 teams as technical director and take a few people to work with you, which team would you pick and who would you choose to take along? And finally, if you could change any part in the current technical directive in order to hopefully bring the teams closer together on track, what would it be? Thanks again for such a great, informative podcast. Christopher Scott. So the first question, Gary, if you were being paid some vast sum of money to make you uh, set aside your admittedly extremely busy retirement to go back to F1, how would you go about it? Well, as you say, Ed, I am in retirement. I am very busy and the last thing I need is a job in Formula One. But I think if, if I was able to pick a team that I would go to try to help, I'm an underdog man. Um, so I would be I'd be picking Williams. Um, you know, it's it's a, a team that's got a lot of history. Um, I've known Frank Williams, or I knew Frank Williams for many many years, um, way before you know the success that he had. But Williams still sticks in there to me as a, a, a an engineering team. It's not a team that was ever set up in a way to be a financial return team. It was an engineering group that was out to do the best job possible and. Obviously, with Frank Williams and Patrick Head, they were just racers, um, and they, you know, they did a fantastic job. So, I, they're the team that I would sort of pick as somebody that I think, you know, I could help um, to to find their way again. Formula One's changed a lot from from the days of of um, nuts and bolts from Frank and, pa- and Patrick. You know, build a good mechanical car and it'll work for you. It's changed dramatically from those days, and it's changed dramatically from my days as well. However, you know, although some people will say I'm not an aerodynamist, but I have, I believe, I can have a very good understanding of the aerodynamic philosophy of a car. How you achieve that is down to aerodynamics, but the aerodynamic philosophy of a car um, is something that's not just, you know, set out by the aerodynamists. You need to achieve that, and I think that's one of the sort of places where. Um, I could help dramatically in what the car should be like aerodynamically. And as I say, let the guys get on them with trying to achieve that. Um, who would I take with me? Um, I have no idea because at the end of the day, I, you know, I've got a group of people that I work with that I respect very highly, but they've all moved on in the years since I've stopped. So they're at different levels now from coming to work with Gary Anderson. It's, that's not something. I had my school of motoring, as I called it, um, and, you know, I had people like Mark Smith, uh, James Key, Peter Bonington, um, Rob Smedley, a um, huge amount of very, very good people around me. And uh, But they've all moved on to different different levels in life now. So you'd have to step back a little bit and, and try and bring in some good 
new brains, um, but try to take with you the old experience for those new brains. Allow those new brains to get on with the job, but use your experience. Because a racing car doesn't change. You know, Back in the 70s when I started in Formula One, it was still about the confidence of the driver on the brakes and turning in at the corner and, and the getting the feedback from the car. It's still exactly the same. It just happens that the cars are very, very different. But the, 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 the ability of the driver hasn't changed. His challenge is to do that as quickly as possible. Arrive at the corner, brake as late as you can, turn the steering wheel and go around the corner, get back in the park. That hasn't changed in all those years. So you may go about it in a different way, you get different feedback from the car, but for the human being within that car, the effort and the feedback is still exactly the same. I mean, I remember Silverstone one year where Nigel Mansell, when he was driving the Williams, um, I remember Patrick Head telling him, you know, the faster you go, the more downforce you got. So then the faster you go. So, you know, Nigel went out and went flat through cops because he was told that the faster he would go, the, uh, the more downforce he'd have. And, and, you know, he made it. But that's the challenge, getting the driver to have the confidence to, to do the things with the car, to, to get it faster. And that's where the philosophy of the car comes into play with me. So, as I say, you need some new guys with current, um, current experience um, around you, but just to try to stabilise them with the years of experience that I've got. Well, there is still a vacancy at Williams, Gary, so you've made a good little pitch there. Although, uh, as you said at the start, I don't think it's worth anybody uh, headhunting you for that one. No, that was that was by far from making a pitch. That was just saying how I see it. And, um, you know, I'm a racer at heart. I like to get dirt under my fingernails. I like to be involved. I like to be part of, because that's the way, you know, I get a gut understanding of where we are. I like to listen to what the drivers are saying about the car and, uh, you know, the, the, the percentage level of problems you pick up from the drivers. And um, that's what just seems to be a little bit away. And I think, you know, we'll get into our next question in a minute, but some of it, some of it will come out there as well. Um, but it's an interesting thing that, you know, new blood and old experience doesn't, doesn't necessarily not go together. I think it should go together. And I think Red Bull, Adrian Newey and his group of people that he has working for him show that, that the two can, can match up. Well, before we get on to our next question, there's a second part of the question from Christopher Scott about if you could change any part of the current technical regulations to bring the teams closer together. Is there any one thing that you think would close things up? In fairness, it's still, it is quite tight, aside from Red Bull being a little bit far out. Even the front-to-back gap isn't too bad. It's 2.6%, I think, in Barcelona. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's not too bad. It's, it's not sort of the fact they're closing it up. I think it's overtaking that's the problem. The grid is as close as it's ever been through the years. You know, I, I've seen us um, in, in the low numbers in fifth or sixth on the grid, and we were like knocking on door 2% behind the guy on pole. And those were the years whenever we classified racing as being better. So it's not actually closing up anymore. It's about um, making it more random, I think, which is the best, the biggest thing from, from the fact that we, you know, the grid we see currently is normally the grid. You know, I'll catch a few changes here and there, but the general thing is that, you know, Red Bull are at the front and at the minute Williams are at the back. I think we need to make the racing better. That's where the lighter cars, the not smaller cars would, would come in a lot because it would it would mean that, you know, you're not just a passenger in this in this very heavy vehicle. You can take a bit of a swipe at somebody. Um, the regulations as far as driver's effort to overtake might need to be reviewed a little bit because it's, it's very random as far as you know, we touch somebody you know racing racing is about not being dangerous but it's about racing 
and you can you can be you can race without danger or you can just be dangerous you can't really be dangerous because you're racing but you can race with a little bit of danger um the cars are very very good very strong all that sort of stuff so injuries are very few few and far between um, and i think we've got to allow the drivers to race a little bit some of the stuff we see uh, and some of the, the radio messages from the drivers oh he's just pushed me off you know all that stuff should be banned that's just rubbish um so there's there's areas where you could change the cars a bit more dramatically, making them uh, better in traffic. I think I would have another go at the front wing assembly to try to reduce the complexity of that because, as you can see, it's, it's, it's been reduced dramatically, but it's still very effective as far as, as how it controls the, the, the weight to the rest of the car. Um, but as I say, I, my first thing would be the size of the car and the weight of the car. Um, and try and make the racing better through making the theoretically the tracks wider because if the cars are narrow the track becomes wider I know it's only a little bit but it gives you that opportunity to steam up the inside of somebody and I think you know racing should be racing um, DRS is someone I don't like because once you've got a system like that that is in place then drivers don't race because they'll wait for the DRS to to operate and then that that breeds a a real strange culture within the drivers you know if you're if you have to pass because you have to pass, then you have to find a solution to that. But at the minute you can wait and do your, you know, your mirror signal maneuver job with the DRS, as we see often. But that's not racing, that's artificial, and I don't like that. So I'd get rid of DRS, or I'd use DRS completely differently. That You could actually use it to catch the car in front of you, but once you got within a second, you couldn't use it. But it would, it would keep the field closed up more, um, so it would allow you that opportunity to force the other guy to make a mistake because you could get to within a second of him and then it's down to you know you can't use the drs he can't use the drs because he's not trying to catch anybody and um you know i think it'd be better more beneficial to racing so yeah a lot of things to be done could be done but nothing will happen i can see in the near future well, the hope is that 2026 and the new rules, because there's talk of greater adjustable aero being used there, so maybe there's an opportunity there. Whether F1 will make the most of it, as you suggest, is another matter. Our next question comes from Alexandra Ask, who says, I'm a newish F1 fan and relatively nerdy person, and while listening to your podcast, a little theoretical question popped up in my head. From what I gather, the F1 cars have loads of sensors to help gather data and inform the engineers on problem areas of the cars. However, they, of course, also need the input from drivers to optimise the car. An experienced driver is assumed to be able to give more accurate and constructive feedback than a more inexperienced driver. My question is this. If a world-class, experienced driver is feeling the issue a car has in the moment and automatically drives to compensate for it in a corner, for example, will it make the data from the car look better than it should be? And if so, is a more mediocre driver going to give more representative sensor data? However, perhaps the driver feedback will be less useful. That's an interesting question there, Gary. You've got plenty of experience in this area. Um, yeah, it is a very interesting question. Uh, the first thing I'd like to say is that, the, that one of the things I would do to make racing better would be to, to ban, other than reliability sensors, a lot of the sensors on the car until the Sunday night as such. So you're allowed X amount of sensors, um, which you, know, you might get tyre pressures, forget tyre temperature, that's down to the driver to feel that. Tire pressures, um, you know, oil pressure, water temperature, etc. All the reliability sensors, uh, or a batch of reliability sensors, let's say, you know, would be the maximum you could have. Sunday night, the car would record all the data, and Sunday night you can have it, and you can go back to the workshop and you could 
think about where you went wrong. Um, the day, the days of sending all the data back to to the factory and getting Mick Schumacher as he did it in Bar- from Barcelona, you know, be in the car all night in a, in a simulator trying to find better solutions on the setup, and my book would be gone because that's that's ridiculous. We want to see the action on the track. We want to see the, the mistakes being made on the track. Um, and that means reducing a lot of that data that you're gathering and allowing the driver and the engineer to work hand in hand with each other to find the best solution to the, to the given problems. It's wrong to say that um, an experienced driver might compensate for the car and the sensors would give you the wrong impression because the sensors are only giving you a reading as to what the car is doing at any point in time. And, and really, you know, the sensors are relative to lap time in, a, in its own little way. Um, if you're if you're quick, and the sensors are giving you X Y Z, telling you the you know the front right hacks at this point during the corner, the rear right hacks at this point during the corner, and that's where you want it to be fine. But what you'll have is aerodynamic data that says um, if the front right height is half a millimeter lower, uh, and the rear right height is two millimeters higher in that corner, you'll have three percent or four percent more downforce. So that's what your sensors tell you as to whether you're in your in your best working window. As I say, the best sensor of the whole lot is the stopwatch. It tells you whether you're going quick or whether you're going slow. So those all go hand in hand. But my thing would be get rid of as many sensors as, as are classified as performance sensors and only have reliability sensors until Sunday night. And on Sunday night when the race is finished, checkered flags come down, you get this big bucket load of data and you can go and do what you want with it after that. But up to that point in time, it's down to the human element which is what the driver is, it's what the engineer is, it's what your team is, but that's that's it, you know. And uh, then, would an experienced driver do better than an inexperienced driver? I've worked with both very closely, and I would say the inexperienced driver is the guy who hangs it all out when he needs to. The experienced driver sometimes wants something that won't come out of that car. You can't get out of that car. So I think it does bring the... It does bring it closer together in experience and experience in the fact that one is is hungry for success and the other one is um, is looking for something that's you know that makes the car better might not find it so you'll get a better mix I believe so yeah you want to make racing better there's another solution to it yeah I thought that's quite an interesting idea that's an idea you've suggested in the past which I think is well worth having a a bit of a look at would seismically change F1 but the the whole thing about drivers and the the feedback they give and the way they test the car there was always an interesting thing with Alain Prost particularly later in his career I remember Paddy Lowe saying this that although Prost was a great test driver and very intelligent the professor and all this in many ways the team actually preferred say Nigel Mansell because you know he'd get in the car and he'd push it and he'd be at 100% at some point whereas Prost because he was working through his own way of doing things would generally not put the car to the limit in testing so you didn't feel he needed to so actually in some ways while one was the genius test driver the the, the great intelligent driver and the other one is seen as more of a just jump in and, and hustle the car actually they offer different things in that regard so is that something you've experienced that sometimes you get drivers who perhaps are good technical drivers but they're almost being too clever 
with it because that thing about the driver being too clever is something that uh, is a sort of comment I've heard all over the place I'm not trying to put down Alan Prost by any stretch of the imagination a great driver but I always found that quite an interesting little comparison that was made yeah I think you do get that I mean there that's really what I'm saying you'll you'll get the 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 driver who can just jumps into it and every lap is wringing its neck and from that you really have to sort of use a stopwatch as to whether or not you're you're quick or slow and whether your adjustments are better or worse. Whereas you'll get the analytical driver like Alan Prost, and he'll not have to be on the limit to feel what the car's like. Does the car respond to all this stuff? And I, think I, I always classified it as two types of drivers. One was driving with the fingertips, and the other one was white knuckles. You know, they're, they're both, at the end of the day, do the same job. And the two drivers that we had at, at the same time, uh, or example of two drivers that we had at the same time, on a couple of occasions, was Rubens Barrichello and Eddie Irvine. And Rubens was a fingertip driver and Eddie was a white-knuckle driver. Uh, but the end of them, both of them would end up doing the same sort of lap time. And the other two was Giancarlo Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher, and they were exactly the same. Fisichella was a fingertip driver and Ralph was a white-knuckle driver. And again, both of them ended up doing more or less the same lap time. So there's many ways of going about it. It's just that whenever you're engineering the car, you have to sort of read it differently, what the feedback's like, because the white-knuckle driver can sometimes create quite a bit of his own problems and you're trying to fix the driver problem as well as the car problem whereas the the white or the the fingertip driver isn't genuinely creating problems he's he's driving the car he's got and giving you the feedback from the car he's got so it's very easy if you're if you're using a lot of muscle a lot of curbs you know because you're just you know trying to bonsai that lap every time to come in with feedback that's really you're you're genuinely creating yourself by a hitting curbs too bad, too too hard, or or braking too late. You know, lots of stuff because you're really trying for that lap. You can you can generate a huge amount of problems. And if your engineer spends his time trying to fix the problems that's generated by you, when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, um, you know you, you can't get any more out of it. Whereas the the fingertip driver will be able to raise his game because he'll have a better car under him. Yeah, it's one of the endlessly fascinating things with not just Formula One but motorsport as a whole. The the engineer-driver relationship and the different ways drivers approach things. So I'm sure we'll have more questions about that in the future. So remember, if you'd like to put a question to Gary, you can send it to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at therace-.com. We'll be poised to answer more of those in our next podcast in two weeks' time. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks, as always, to Gary. It's on to the Canadian Grand Prix now, so join us next time for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.